Hello, and welcome back to the latest edition of Nerd Out, the security panel discussion, where I have two panelists with me today. You'll know them uh, as they are quite regular attendees here. We got Bridget Johnson and Joe Levy with us. Hey, guys, what do you think? Are we nerds? Are we nerdites? Are we nerdies? What's the what's the best thing here? I mean, what do, what do you think? I'm a nerdette. You're a nerdette, okay. <laughs> All right. Joe, yeah, I don't you- mind wearing, I'll wear that moniker. I, I go right, full on nerd. Okay. There. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going full on nerd. So, so I got my merry band of, I, I got a nerd ed and a nerd with us here and we'll, we'll just go with that. So uh, welcome start. back everyone. Thanks for joining me today. Um, it's the start of fall. It kind of feels that way in Florida. Um, went out the door today, it was 70 something degrees and it felt a little chill to the air considering and no humidity. That was a big part for me. So let's just start off with a little warm up here. What's your favorite? What are you looking to now as a favorite part of fall here as we get into it? Bridget. Fall is the best season in DC. And I just love how like the temperature just automatically changed on what was technically the first day of fall (laughs) and just like the humidity disappeared and you know you could actually go outside and go for walks and open windows and and wear jammies and everything like that and so it's it's uh um it's it's basically the the only season to exist here winter's (laughs) good too but summer is just unbearable yeah it gets it gets the the humidity up there gets it gets pretty rough. Joe, what are, what are you looking to most of the, for the fall? Yeah, so up here in the Northeast, of course, it's beautiful when the leaves all start changing. Uh, so I, I do, and I, I echo Bridget's uh, sentiment about humidity. Um, it's, the, it's the one part of the of the uh, weather that I can't stand. So, uh, and two, I woke up this morning, opened the door, and I, it must have dropped by, I don't know, 30, 40% and a good 10 degrees. So this morning was an absolute uh, beautiful day here in the lower Hudson Valley. So uh, more of those. I love that first couple of nights where you can sleep with the windows open. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So, so the leaves have probably turned up there. Have they, are they starting to turn? Yeah. The, so the early ones are dropping. They haven't really started turning just yet, but that'll, that'll uh, change here uh, pretty quickly. But uh, they're, you know, my yard is covered in uh, just boring brown leaves. So oh, soon the reds you. and the yellows and stuff will happen. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the fall because I, I like because it gives you an excuse to have soup. You know, I'm I'm a big I'm a big soup fan, and it's just nothing like a like a chilly, a little chill to the air, and you get a good good warm cup of soup. So uh, I, I enjoy it. It's not not quite the same in Florida, but it, it can get cold here sometimes. So all right. So with all that in mind, so by the time this uh, podcast is going to come out, it'll have been 10 days since the uh, 10, 11 days since the J4, J6 uh, rally or or not so much of a rally uh, happened in Washington, D.C. And then a couple other areas, the J4, J6, obviously, is the justice for January 6th, uh, where uh, groups of people around the country felt um, that some of those who were arrested in conjunction with the January 6th insurrection or incident, whatever you want to term it, uh, were being held as political prisoners. So with that as a backdrop, um, things didn't quite um, happen the way you know they were anticipating. It was a much smaller crowd. In fact, there was more police officers or media members than they actually felt that were actually attendees. Um, but I'm not so sure that that's the big part of the story. It seemed like there was a, a well, it was quite clear the preparedness part of this um, exercise was very well orchestrated. 
Um, so let's start with you, Bridget. Um, what, what's the takeaway from this J4, J6? Is it the fact that um, there was preparedness in place? Is it the fact that, uh, or is there a belief that maybe this group might not be as strong as, as we had anticipated and may have fizzled out since January 6th? Or, or what's your key takeaway? I have a few key takeaways, and they basically all center around why it petered out, why it wasn't um, anything to write home about. Um, first of all, you have the deterrence effect, of course. Um, we were kind of all happy in D.C. to see the fence come back out and go back up around the Capitol. Um, of course, you know, lawmakers weren't even there that day because it was a weekend. Um, but you have a new chief at Capitol Police. Um, you have um, lessons learned, of course, from last time. So, you know, they basically were, weren't going to uh, leave anything up to chance. Um, unfortunately, though, you know, to get that kind of deterrence effect, um, you had to use a lot of officers who were there the first time and who are carrying some traumatic scars from that. Um, but, you know, it's well, what are you going to do? So. Um, the second um, thing that was a big factor was, I think, distrust, distrust of the organizer, distrust that uh, that it was a setup, that people who were going to show up um, were just going to either be taken into custody or they were going to be identified and, you know, have their identity spread around um, or, you know, basically that um some people were feeling that this event that was pitched as something that was grassroots to stand up for people who were arrested um, during the, the, the um, storming of the Capitol, um, you know, basically wasn't, wasn't all that it was being cranked up to be, you know, a lot of distrust of who was going to be there, who was putting it on, you know, whether there were, you know, feds floating out in the audience, et cetera. And the, the third factor, and I think this is the one that uh, evokes long-term concern, is some who think that this is a revolution and that the revolution is beyond the point of protest. Uh, and this is where I think intelligence community officials who have continuing concern about the, the a lot of the, the movements that were involved in this, a lot of the, the movements that continue on to this day um, the, and movements that are basically fueled by what went on on, on January 6th. Um, there is this sense that, um, that it has moved almost into a different phase. And, you know, you can basically say you don't see ISIS, you know, holding signs to protest their prisoners because they've moved to the point of action. You know, they don't want to show up at some sort of event and expose their identities. Um, they want to keep their powder dry for another day. Um, or they feel that by this point that protest is meaningless. So I think that, that the fact that people did not show up uh, is not an excuse to breathe easy about some of these movements who were involved as a whole. 
Yeah, I really found it interesting that you're talking about the distrust part, and I'll do two parts here. The distrust part is very interesting that even very high, you know, highly recognized public officials or former public officials were very adamant about, hey, look at these pictures of the feds who are acting like protesters and, and all of that stuff. And I, I found that quite uh, interesting to continue to just flood social media and flood the uh, internet with a various number of just continued reasons to be distrustful of, of legitimate sources of media, for example. And I think that was quite interesting. The, you know, the part about, um, you know, moving beyond protesting it is very important. And I think, I think there's to, that's one of the, the uh, an essential takeaway here is just because this did fizzle out doesn't mean that the movement is gone and that the um, that the threat or, or the risk of these type of things are, are gone away. We still are at a point where we are in a very, you know, across a number of ve um, vectors, whether that be COVID, whether that be the, the vaccine, it's reopenings, it's, it's mask mandates. There are so many flash button triggers that um, any number of ways that these type of things can manifest itself. And I think it's really important for organizations to still be mindful and be on the lookout for these type of behaviors. Because you're I think you had a good analogy there. Al Qaeda doesn't protest their political prisoners; they they take action. So, very great point there, um, Joe. Want to come to you with regards to the preparedness part because, you know, we saw on so many different levels. One, because of the lessons learned from January sixth, we saw so many different things, and more. I think it was a more of a visible out front presence, whether that's communications out in the media whether that's dump trucks lining the streets to block off you know, parallel routes or, or infiltrators coming in, whether that's, of course, the police that were really geared up in a lot of things. You know, when you look at this from a venue management and, and, and you're our venue management guru, uh, when, when you look at this from a venue management perspective, are there lessons that you know, we can take away and apply these to other instances or, you know, kind of on the reverse side, are these venues already ahead of where, you know, the Capitol Police were in, in, on January 6th? And, and they're already doing these things. The Super Bowl is one of the most, you know, heavily protected events in, in the world, I would imagine. World Cup soccer matches, some of these larger venues are really well secure. It, is it is there anything we can learn from it or is it already being done and we kind of need to refine our, our practices there? Uh, you know, so what's interesting when you apply that to the to the J4J6 issue uh, um, fizzle there, um, I think the biggest thing that it, it, there was a roadmap, like everybody sort of knew what to plan for because they had just seen it. Um, and also I think predictably, um, it was destined to not get much traction. You know, the groundswell behind the J4J6 was different than what had actually happened on January 6th because uh, the stakes were were lower. Like, you know, the, the, that sort of insurrection or whatever you want to call it occurred because the, the they were trying to stop something. 
um, and this was a rally in support of, or whatever the you know the the motivation was about joining. So, um, and I also, if 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 I'm if I uh, remember correctly, there there weren't any like major A list people speaking. Um, so I, the draw to to repeat what had happened on January the sixth, I, I don't think it was in the cards, and of course the 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 presence, the preparedness was. Um, kind of, if you think about it, what everybody would have hoped would have been there for January 6th. So um, it's 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 easy to Monday morning quarterback um, these types of events, and in essence, they did get to do that for the for the January, you know, the J4J6 event. Because could you have imagined what we we would be talking about today if it happened again at that rally? If they overtook something, or there was an you know an unbelievable force of um, of people overwhelming the Capitol Police. I mean, I don't even know what the conversation would be, but it would not be good. So, um, although I really like uh, Bridges' perspective on that, that the this fizzle really doesn't mean much because if they've moved beyond, you know, caring about a protest, well, I'm like, well, what then what are they going to do next? So, um, and I use they sort of, you know, more flippant than classifying that group of people, but um, you, when, when you when you have the resources like the federal government, those things can roll up pretty quickly. You, you call it the Super Bowl. You know, obviously that's a SEER event, so that sort of pulls the trigger on uh, access to federal government resources. Uh, the Olympics, any major sporting event, will get those resources. And uh, between money and access to uh, law enforcement and um, you know homeland security initiatives. Um, is is fast and plentiful, and there are many many years of of uh, experience that you can draw on, and um, you know you go to these you go to these large venues, and you know a, a stadium will take up a, a lot of square footage. There are many uh, roads to get to the stadium, um, but I'm not sure if that particular if a stadium's footprint is larger than uh, downtown DC. So uh, even still, they have lots of resources access to communication uh, um, between agencies um, and, and a smaller footprint to, to protect when you're talking about like a, a large stadium. Uh, so um, in my mind, uh, to prepare for a potential rally or protest march that can be coming with a lot more people um, is a little more scary for me because uh, you have windows and buildings and alleys and cars and trucks and buses, and there's just a lot of access in a lot of different ways uh, and for days and days if you know something's happening you come to town a day or a week earlier you're not likely to get into the stadium uh prior to um uh, an event like a super bowl so, so let me ask you this you brought up a good point there jill is, is let me ask you this on you know obviously when there's an event that's you know obviously there's a set time and we know weeks and months in advance that this is occurring you know we can we can implement a preparedness plan or or even come up with a, a unique preparedness plan that may address a, a specific event what you know in an instance like hey this you know we had a flashbang incident that happened and now two days later we're, you know, we're, we're facing protests or, or demonstrations that, as you described, could come from all different angles and very, you know, from all different ways. In those type of incidences, what, what are some good tricks for, and I hate to use the word trick, I mean, ultimately, if you have a baseline preparedness plan, it should be there, but what are some things that really need to kick into gear right away for an organization to say, hey, this just happened, what, what are some things that we need to do 
immediately to assess that threat? We, you know, what do you, what do you, where do you, where do you stand on that? Well, it, when those things happen, the larger the, the venue, they tend to have uh, access to more people power. And if, if you're leading up to a major event uh, and if something happens in your community, uh, the resources are gonna come flowing and they're gonna come fast and furious. I think the coordination between agencies, uh, the municipalities, the law enforcement, uh, federal government, state government, um, they're plentiful when these events happen. So um, that, uh, I think those, the, the access to resources escalate with the larger the event and the, uh, and the larger the concern. So um, I'm not sure if that answers, the, answers your question, but I think it, the very first thing I would be looking for is um, how do I coordinate communication between agencies and how do I get more people to station where they need to be, uh, you know, the, the, the secondary, the primary, the tertiary uh, security rings that you want to put around your venues, and people will start uh, moving into your town weeks and weeks before a major event, and they take up every hotel room um, in the area to, to work the event. So you'll have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming um, in advance of um, a, a Super Bowl, for instance, and they start their coordination efforts very, very early. Um, I don't know how soon they start rerouting traffic, you know, whether it's the day before or two days before, um, but they tend to try not to disrupt too much too soon, but they're there, they're planning in, in, and they're in mass um, trying to um, prepare for all eventualities. And plus you have people who are monitoring, you know, the, the, all the social media platforms, listen for the chatter, you know, who's saying what, who's threatening what, et cetera. And then they will plan for that stuff. They, I think in, in my experience, they tend to not ignore the chatter out there, unless it's just, you know, obviously just something silly and ridiculous, but I think they will start preparing for most eventualities um, leading up to any of these major sporting events. Yeah, and I think then if also if you're a smaller organization caught maybe on the outside of the or on the periphery of this, you know, it's it's really important to tie into those resources and, and leverage your partners and leverage your neighbors and to see what you know what's the best business model for you so that you, you know you're not only protecting your business or organization, but you're also protecting you know, potential customers, clients, your employees, and making sure that everybody is at least alert and aware of what's happening and 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 communicating that and 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 really executing some sort of preparedness plan that you have should X, Y, or Z occur. So I think it's really important that organizations come away from this and say, look, let's get our baseline plan down. Let's get our preparedness model down. How are we gonna do if X, Y, or Z occur? And look, we can always adjust as, as things need be. If, if it's not gonna be as bad as it is, maybe we don't, we ramp down our, our preparedness. If, if it is gonna be as bad or if it's becoming worse, we know we can, we can take the next series of actions to further protect ourselves. So no, that's good, great points, Joe. I really appreciate all that, fee that input. Um, Bridget, let me just ask you quickly, um, you know, if, if this is not, you know, the bang anymore, the, if the J4, J6 type of event is not going to be it, what, what are you scared about um, from these type of groups? And, and I don't mean just, you know, the J4, J6 uh, clientele. I mean, any of these uh, groups that are looking to exploit any number of social issue right now, and there's a number of them, as we noted earlier, what, what's your major concern as we move forward? Well, I think one of the concerns is that the cat is already out of the bag. Um, 
because at the January 6th protest, um, you know, it, it was noted that, you know, through the protest into the Capitol riot, um, there were groups who had maybe known of each other before or had maybe had connected online and they were connecting in person for the first time. Um, and that there was networking basically that had gone on there that hadn't gone on before. Now, if we also frame this in the context of the fact that, um, you know, Al Qaeda has been courting people who are involved in the Capitol attack multiple times now, um, with a recent video telling the raiders of the Congress, as they call them, and similar groups that they will, quote, find what they need in the Inspire magazine issued by the Mujahideen in the Arabian Peninsula. Well, what do you find in Inspire? You find bombs, pressure cooker recipe that was used in the Boston Marathon. Um, there's a, there was one issue that had a train derailment tool. <laughs> you know, there's basically all sorts of, of different devices and IEDs. Um, so, you know, so basically you've got um, groups that are operating from different ideologies that have open source material to share. Um, some of this is tutorial in nature. Um, and these, these groups will either latch onto conspiracy theories um, as a driver for what they believe or as something that they can exploit in order to further accelerationism, further chaos, um, you know, basically latching onto topics that will whip people into a frenzy, that will turn them against garments and institutions, uh, that will start that slide into extremism if they're not already there, um, and that will stoke chaos and violence and, you know, this, this theory of accelerationism and, and quest for societal downfall. So, um, so you've got basically a lot of cross-pollination happening right now, and I think that's one of the the, the 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 key concerns moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's. I mean, you're always brings such a bright sunny outlook to these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's happy fall, a, everyone. Yeah, happy fall. <laughs> I have some pumpkin latte here, um, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it, it is a really big concern. I mean, I think it, it is interesting in this information age how much, even though some of these groups may be so diametrically opposed to one another and ideologically they're so different, um, how much they can learn from one another and share from one another and even provoke and, uh, you know, and kind of poke the bear in some respects and, and get another group to get going. I, I think it's really important, especially important as we get back into um, and I know we've been talking about this for 18 months or, you know, almost a year now about return to office and, and all this other stuff. We're still not completely back. But as organizations start bringing employees back full time um, and into the office full time, these are things that are going to bleed into. And these are really awareness items that we really need to look out for. And, and I don't necessarily want to say you're, you're doing active monitoring of this, but we, there should be some flags in awareness of, of extremist ideologies and, and materials and what those little indicators are and, and how that looks like in the workplace. Um, you know, some of these groups are too smart to do that, but some of them are not. And so, or some of these individuals are not. So 
Well, okay, so let's uh, one really appreciate topic one there. It's it's a, it was really interesting to see how that was going to play out. I think there's a lot of preparedness lessons from there uh, for organizations to take, but it's also a reminder that it's not over. Don't don't be fooled into thinking the low turnout was any indicator that that, that the problem has gone away. In fact, it just manifests itself in other ways and, and such. So let, let's look at another thing. I I have a I'm a man of series of part time jobs, and and now I picked up another part timer role and responsibility. It, it, I I am working. Um, with uh, data logging, I guess, for a particular or for the NFL now. Uh, I happen to work in Jacksonville, so I've been in the Jacksonville games, but uh, I'm the backup to the uh, primary uh, stack keeper. Uh, it's kind of a fun job. I've never really been in that type of environment, but to see this enter operation go through this game day operation is just it's mind blowing to me uh, the amount of work that goes into it, and they've done a an amazing job in Jacksonville, and and I'm just sitting there watching all of this stuff occur. But I'm also this is my first time inside the bowels of a um, of a stadium, and such a you know, and I know Jacksonville is not the largest stadium. There's a lot, obviously Dallas has a has a huge stadium. The one in L.A. is now a, a massive in Las Vegas. They have these great venues. Joe, I, I'm not very envious of your type of role and responsibility in securing these type of places. Um, it looks like a logistical nightmare. Um, is, is, it, is it as bad as it looks? Um, you know, so I, I've been inside of a few stadiums and the, you know, they're like small cities. Right. And um, you, when you think about it, a lot of them are, are third party vendors, you know, that are basically working for a central management company, a venue management complicator, a, a company or, catering lead, et cetera. But uh, yeah, there are thousands of people that it takes to run these stadiums. Um, I've never run a stadium myself, um, although maybe one day, uh, although I do have some uh, uh, dear friends and colleagues in the industry that run some of the stadiums. And um, I'm all similar to you. I'm so impressed when I walk through with these big eyes and when you get to go into the command center, um, they're well fit that, you know, they're, they're, they're well fitted. They've got, uh, they've got resources, they've got cameras everywhere. They've got command rooms, they've got communication devices and tools. So uh, yes, it's a lot of space, but they tend to have the resources. Although again, I suspect if you talk to the heads of security, they're like, I need more. I don't have enough. Of course, of um, course. Of course, right. Um, but they are they are extraordinarily um, uh, complex and um, there are um, there, but they have they have tools to get their job done at that uh, at that upper end of venue management. They're um, they're not playing around. They uh, I mean, a lot of them have holding cells. Um, so when, you know, when fans and visitors are acting, uh, acting the fool, they, you know, they have places to take them and, um, lot, and there'll be like little mini police stations. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, yeah, they're, they're very cool. I, I, I'm a, a very jealous that uh, you're now actively working at one. Um, I suspect you're up higher, like more press, press box, uh, upper, upper level yeah, suite. Yep. Uh, up in the press box. And I'll yep. be truthful. It sounds like a really fun job, but really I, my, my head would be buried in a computer logging in the, the data yeah. as the crowd goes crazy over a big play or something. So it's not as it, it's the experience is cool, but not what from watching a game perspective, a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not enjoying the game. You're working. That's for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, there are a lot worse uh, environments to work in than a, you know, a really cool, sweet uh, box at, uh, at the stadium. So. 
Exactly, exactly. Bridget, looking at these type of venues and, and maybe seeing now how the security does work, you know, there really haven't been, you know, you kind of look at some of these, I mean, tomorrow there'll be a, a ton of college football games, 100,000 people in some venues. In the pros games, you're looking at 75 to 85,000 people in some of these venues. When you think about it from a, a threat perspective, these are, I mean, you would think, oh, these are ideal venues to target. But over time, they really haven't had too many. I know in Paris in 2015, the soccer match, there were some issues with some of the soccer, um, or there was that the, the uh, close coordinated terrorist attack in Paris that spilled into the soccer stadium. There's been a couple here and there, not to diminish the ones that have been carried out, but is it, is it because of the security is so tight that they don't target these places or is there just not the bang for the buck that they would get from another venue? What, what do you think? I think it's, it's not for a lack of trying, you know, as we did see with, with the soccer stadium in Paris. And then another thing that immediately comes to mind is the Manchester arena. Oh, right. Yeah. Ariana yeah. Grande con yeah. concert, you know, where the best he could do was be in the lobby, you know, while people were coming out of the concert. Um, but then again, you look back to the Paris attacks and what was, you know, the, the part of that attack that basically the um, ISIS considered their biggest coup during that was the Bataclan concert hall. So you had a venue there, you had one that was packed with people, um, but it just didn't have those layers of security because it was a small concert hall. Um, so that was kind of instructive, I think, to them where, yes, you know, you can pick, um, you know, venues that have a lot of people, um, they're condensed into a small space, um, you can try to inflict the maximum amount of damage in a short amount of time and catch people off guard and, you know, where you're not going to run into layers of security, such as the Pulse nightclub. Um, you know, another thing that, that comes to mind too was um, the admiration that, that terrorist groups expressed for the Las Vegas mass shooting, saying, hey, you know, the guy didn't even have to get in the concert. You know, all he had to do was go to a high rise nearby and take a sniper position. And, you know, he was for a long time impossible to get at. Um, so I think that, you know, both there is kind of a resignation that, you know, a, a midsize or a smaller venue um, could prove to be um, an easier target and one where they can inflict more damage, or as in seen with the case of the Las Vegas Music Festival, that they should be taking um, more creative routes to basically um, get past security. Yeah, I mean, it, it, having a, a lot of great points there. I mean, it, obviously, they have to do their own risk calculation about, you know, are they able to carry out their um, their their objectives uh, successfully enough? And and now seeing it from the other side, you can really look at it and go, wow. I mean, it would be really hard to have the same type of impact that they did. And maybe that is exactly like you said, why they, they did, they do praise the people like the Las Vegas shooter who took a different type of approach, had a really profound impact. I think it, it's very interesting when you see some of these venues now that have not just what's going on inside the stadium, 
but it's the outside of the stadium thing too. Like the, uh, you know, I remember the, just from the NBA finals, they had, they called it Deer Park outside of the Milwaukee Bucks stadium where, you know, they just have this big outdoor festivities going on, watching the big jumbotron and, and stuff. I, and I'll go back even further to when the World Cup was in Germany. I think it was 2014. Uh, but, you know, they would just put up the big screen of um, in the middle of the, the city square and everybody would just gather around, drink some beers and have some bratwurst and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's great food and great drink. And those venues were extending that out a little bit. That, that's going to be a chat, I guess. Does that make it, Joe, just that that much more challenging when you're trying to create the fan experience there, but it's a security nightmare? Oh, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, and we all know if, if you have anything to do with security, that there, there's no there's no hundred percent um, way to secure any of these venues. Um, I don't care how hard the tar the target is. But, you know, crowded spaces really uh, keep me up at night, uh, especially as just I was just going to I was about to bring up and you beat me to it, which is how many of these venues will do something outside. Yeah. Um, outside the venue because they want, you know, they want to have some type of uh, improved fan experience outside their venues. And um, I really try to instill in anyone I'm helping coordinate for training uh, that uh, you know, the most important aspect, I believe, personally, uh, among many uh, is situational awareness and just getting your team prepared to, if you see something, say something. I mean, it's a brilliant slogan and it really, really works. And you can't let your guard down. I'm more concerned about my uh, egress after the event than I am about my ingress because people tend to arrive at different times, but mostly everybody leaves at the same time. Right. So that's the one that gives me more concern. And a lot of people let their guard down. They're like, whoo, encore is over. We made it through a successful night. And then everybody, the doors open, everybody pours out and you have anywhere from, I don't know, you know, a couple of thousand to a hundred thousand people all basically leaving at the same time. Uh, you're, you're, your outside, your secondary and your and your perimeter posts really need to understand their post orders that their job's not done until they're they're clocking out and going home. So um, yeah, that's uh, that gives me that gives me great concern. Crowded spaces outside the venue are, are a much easier target than uh, a crowded space inside the venue. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And you, you hit on something, see something, say something. I'll, I'll remind everybody September 25th, which will be, you know, have occurred after this podcast is, or before this podcast is being released, it is September 25th was uh, national or, or see something, say something awareness day. You know, CISA has a lot of great uh, resources related to this. Uh, DHS has a lot of stuff online that you can go check out, see something, say something day that even though the, the date is the 25th, you can, you can use the tools and the resources any day of the year. And I we highly encourage everyone to go to that. Uh, so that'll transition us into our last section here. There are three questions that we'll go through. Um, but I want to start with the CISA thing. It was going to be one of our agenda topics, but want to make sure we're we're good on time here. This week uh, we'll do we'll do three questions, but we'll do um, this week CISA released the uh, de-escalation guidelines procedure, and it was a four-step process uh, about uh, taking from identifying, recognizing, assessing, uh, de-escalating, and then reporting. Um, you know, pamphlets and products and, and disseminating that out to the larger community. So my question here is this, 
Is there a greater resource out there than CISA? Joe. Uh, for as just a general resource or for de-escalation? Just for as a general resource. Um, this is up there. I mean, all the DHS um, areas and FEMA and FBI.gov, they've got some really great, smart uh, uh, resources, um, all in, all in, uh, in concert together. They're, they're all, they complement each other. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Bridget, your take on CISA how, how, from a resource perspective. This is the bomb, and I mean that in like a bomb prevention sort of way, um, <laughs> because they're putting practical information in the hands of people who can actually use it. You know, I'll use as an example um, the Office of Bombing Prevention. Um, you know, they're actually out, you know, working with retailers. Um, you know, say it's a hardware store and somebody comes in and, you know, buys a strange, you know, an ornament amount of, you know, certain components, you know, because they're trying to MacGyver themselves a bomb. And, um, you know, a, a, a cashier, you know, might not otherwise recognize that this purchase is suspicious or the fact um, of how the person is paying is suspicious or the person is acting as suspicious, you know, things like that. So, getting out there at that point of IED construction um, and being able to get tips, you know, that could help them intercept um, bombers and devices at this point is huge, you know? So they're, so, you know, they're working with people who would otherwise have no, you know, experience in intelligence or counterterrorism and teaching them, you know, points A, B, and C of what you should be looking for. And it's, it's, it's just, irreplaceable so yeah i just really find all great points i think they just they just they're able to take the current trends and, and put paper you know pen to paper and put something out there and they're and they go back and update their stuff i think they do a really fabulous job and i, I know that we're really big supporters and fans of of CISA for sure. Okay, so ne next question, it, it, it is fall. I know we've had this question pop up a couple times about you know what we most look forward to in the fall. What is the food item we're most looking forward to in the fall? Joe. Uh, regular food item? Uh, yeah. you know, I, I think on a previous podcast, I committed to uh, you know, that, uh, the, the new way to make a, you know, cook the turkey this year. Uh, and I haven't come up with it just yet, but uh, I, I'm, I'm starting to think about turkey. We're going to have uh, Thanksgiving at uh, my house uh, this year. And this can be, uh, it's, there are going to be a few people here. So all vaccinated, by the way. Yeah, there you go. Here, cheer, cheer. All right, Bridget, what's the food item you're looking for? I would associate fall food more with um, football type food. All right. So, you know, I would start thinking of things like the potato skins mm, yeah. and, uh, well, yeah, like chicken wings. Some, yeah. some massive seven layer dip or something. Um, stuff that that really says football. Okay. All right. I, I, I said soup earlier and I do love the soup, but I, I, I also, it, it's not necessarily a fall thing, but it, maybe it is because of, you know, fall culminates with Thanksgiving. I, I just, I, I just love pies. And so uh, blueberry pie, apple pie, chocolate chest pie, you name it, I'm, I'm there for it. So uh, I'll, I'll stick with that. So, but, but Bridget brought up football and then, and it is football season and, and Travis is not here for his Ohio state takes. Thank goodness. Don't need to hear that. But, but let's, the last question here is, you know, football seasons here, college football, 
and pro football. Are we happy with our football teams, Joe? Oh, uh, you know, I'm in New York, so unfortunately, <laughs> at the moment, I'm gonna. Can, can I? Can I? Uh, can I abstain from answering the question? <laughs> uh, I, you can abstain. Maybe for the next five years, I'll let you abstain. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bridget, you, you, before the conversation, before we started recording, you had, you know, seemed to indicate that you may need to start paying attention to your team again after, uh, after the Super Bowl from two years ago. So what, what do you say here? <laughs> yeah, I actually do need to just like reconnect with my beloved 49ers because, uh, well, you know, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 interfered with the start of the, uh, the, 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 the football season. Um, so my head's been in that for a few weeks, but um, and gladly so, but I guess uh, it's time to actually figure out what the Niners are doing these days. So yeah. not, not too shabby, I'll say. Um, my, my teams are lukewarm and average. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. I, I'm a Cowboys guy, if, I, if that hasn't been clear. And Penn State's my college team. And my son goes to South University of South Carolina. So Penn State's doing okay. Everyone else is kind of just there. And I'll just, I'll like Joe, I'll just leave it at that. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> kind of go from there. Maybe, maybe at the end, I, I think I, what I found about my fandom over the years is I'm not quite as, like I, I, I still obviously want my teams to win, but it, it doesn't impact me and ruin my day like it used to. So I'll, I'll just, uh, <laughs> maybe that's the gray hair that I've got on my head at this point. So, um, all is right. Things we can't change. Is that, is that what I just heard? Uh... <laughs> Something like that. It's weird. <laughs> you know, I, I always thought if I sat in the right chair at the same time and crossed my legs the same way and, and wore my hat the same time, it would have a positive impact on people thousands of miles away playing a sport that I never played myself. So it's all, all fun. So, all right. I, I do want to call out Bridget. It was uh, Homeland Security today did a fabulous job with the 9-11 uh, memorial stuff, uh, anniversary and, and celebration stuff. So kudos to you on that. Um, and then uh, we'll just wrap it up for today, but I want to give each of our panelists a chop opportunity. It's the P2, plug, promote, or maybe it's the three, T, three, T, or three Ps, a plug, promote, or parting shot. So Joe, on, your, on to you. Uh, you know, again, I'd love to plug the uh, the safety and security committees uh, for the International Association of Venue Managers. And uh, we have some subcommittees that are sector specific. So whether you work in amphitheaters, convention centers, arenas, racetracks, um, there is a subcommittee for you. You do not have to be a member of IABM to uh, join those subcommittees, but uh, you'll find a lot of your uh, industry colleagues from across the country will join Safe Space, talk about your issues, uh, lean on your colleagues for networking and advice, et cetera. So if you're interested in getting more information, uh, feel free to reach out to us at uh, vssc at iavm.org and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get you connected to a subcommittee uh, that works for you. Awesome. And again, these venue, this venue management, IAVM is just unbelievable with the amount of stuff that they have to offer. And, and Joe, we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us. Uh, Bridget, anything uh, plug, promote, or parting shot? I'm going to tell a story. It's a security-related story. So, Ooh, okay. so I, <laughs> I had ordered um, a handbag that I wanted off one of those luxury consignment sites. And so I get my pink Balenciaga in the, the, the mail this week. And so I get a flashlight, and I'm looking through it. And in the outer pocket, there are two pills 
Uh, one is round, one is oval. They're clearly not professionally manufactured. Um, so I, you know, pull out some ID guides and, and um, concluded that they were probably ecstasy. <laughs> oh, interesting, all right. <laughs> and and um, so I, I, I did take that back to the company and report it and say, hey, you know, what if this had been shipped to a, a household that had a kid and the kid was looking through the pockets of this purse, you know, and found these and decided they were candy or whatever. And, and you know, it, it made sense in a way that they were there because if somebody's going to go out clubbing, you know, they're going to grab their nice purse or whatever and, and stash whatever in it. But um but yeah, so, and then the, the company gave me a $40 credit for my ecstasy. <laughs> so, <laughs> and now I'm calling the purse my Elenciaga. So. <laughs> nice, but, nice. All right. Well, then, well then. Hey, listen, I, I'm going to say that um, uh, thankfully it went to you, Bridget, right? And you had the wherewithal right. to actually do that. I think some <laughs> other people may have just like discarded it and not uh, followed through with the company. So hopefully now the company is being a little bit more diligent on, uh, you know, when they take in consignment bags. So, good. except I, I don't think that I can take that purse like through any checkpoint where there are sniffer dogs. <laughs> All right. So now, yeah, that's probably a fair point. You probably will get uh, flagged there, and uh, it, it's. Uh, I, I'm always reminded of that. Uh, see, did you guys ever see? Um, what's that movie uh, not another teen movie it's an old one it's it's chris evans before he was chris evans but any, anywho th there's a scene it's a it's a spoof on all these teen movies and the last one is him trying to stop a, a girl from getting on a plane at the end of the movie and and he just bypasses all the security people and and nobody raises an eyebrow and then one old lady goes through the security thing and and uh, flips it one time and, and everyone converges and tackles them and does all that fun stuff. It's not another teen movie. I highly recommend it. Mr. T's in it. Great, great times uh, if you're in for stupid comedy. Uh, I, will, I will similarly uh, just say one thing on a security standpoint, if I could promote or anything, it is doing your research on stuff and, and doing the right thing when it comes to uh, looking into issues. Again, we've talked about disinformation, misinformation so many times. And, and I, again, this is not a political statement. It's just a, a statement about an incident, an individual who died who was an anti-vaxxer, uh, and they, in fact, died from COVID. Um, and, and, you know, the, the family had said that this individual had done their research and, and no doubt they, they probably did do research. All I would do, I'm just going to use it as an example. If you're going to do research on an issue, please make sure you're not just researching the people who support your point of view, research the people who have the different point of view understand both sides of the issue. We need to make sure in this age of information and disinformation and information overload, we really need to make sure we're checking our sources, we're getting accurate information and we're being when we're challenging positions on both ends. So with that, I will just- Agree hundred <laughs> percent. And, and CISA actually has some really good uh, resources on how to check sources, yes. you know, give you some really good advice on this particular subject between misinformation, disinformation, et cetera. So go to CISA's website. Here, here, here. Thank you, Joe. Great, great add in there. But 
you, and that's actually right. I mean, just go in and, and do the work. Just imagine if it was a college paper and what your college professor <laughs> would do. I, I'll just, Mrs. Altman was my AP history teacher and she was brutal about uh, checking sources. Okay, and that end, uh, I wanna, on behalf of Bridget and Joe, I wanna thank you all for listening. I wanna thank my panelists, Joe and Bridget for attending and, and providing their insight as always. I will also remind you about the variety of Gate 15 podcasts. We have the Gate 15 interview with Andy Jabor, where he interviews industry experts across the, the spectrum and, and puts it out in a podcast. And we have the Cybersecurity Evangelist with Jennifer Lynn Walker, where she gives and really delivers down home, straight to it, of cybersecurity advice for the people. Uh, she does a great job with that. And then Andy, did, Jen, and I get together for the Risk Roundtable. Uh, those are all on the Gate 15 podcast channel. We encourage you to listen, rate us, and, and send us uh, comments at podcast at gate15.mailbox. And we really appreciate um, everything. So with that, um, I will just leave it at that. I'm sure I butchered that uh, email address at the end. I, in fact, I know I did. So I'll, I'll, I'll get that fact checked and, and uh, put that in the show notes. So everyone, uh, thank you all for listening. Joe and Bridget, you guys have a great rest of your day and uh, we'll catch up with you in a little bit. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.